I'm Philip Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I speak with Khalid Mansour. Khalid shares the twists and turns of a fascinating life during which he grabbed chances to change careers multiple times. He worked as an engineer, then as a translator and journalist, then for the United Nations in Afghanistan, the US and Sudan, and then for a small human rights organization in Egypt before deciding to become a teacher and writer, just publishing two books. There are amazing lessons to be drawn about how to grasp opportunities to reinvent yourself, how to effect change in big organizations, the importance of balancing analysis with empathy and the role parenthood can have in encouraging a life of responsible citizenship. What I would like maybe to start with is to ask you about your different lives, plural, <laughs> given you've Uh, your professional life has spanned so many different things and there's the theme of transition that comes out very strongly and so i would love to get a bit of a sense of what led to such big transitions from how you started out in engineering to then pivoting multiple times i think all of us have uh, multiple lives at least two I mean there is your internal life and how you feel about the world and there is the way you introduce yourself to the world by your profession by your social status by where you come from you say I'm I'm Chinese or I am Cameroonian or I'm an engineer uh, or stuff like that but the lucky or the luckier amongst us are those who can maybe try different life in in the real world and i think in my case i was lucky in that sense i mean it takes a bit of luck chance coincidence but i wouldn't be too uh, too humble it also takes a little bit of bravery and courage yeah uh, to leave your comfort zone because all of us come within an environment which gives you the best course to to navigate so in my case for example in a low middle class family in uh, in a city uh, north of cairo egypt in the 70s 80s the best course was to become an engineer or a doctor because these were the professions in which you can make money which you can secure a good living uh, which you can have climb the social ladder especially as a boy and that's what i followed uh, to start with that's how i became an engineer and i think after graduation and after working as an engineer for almost for almost 2 years i was lucky and brave to leave that to find a chance to move into something else and i wasn't sure unlike many i mean like many of us i wasn't sure what I, what i exactly want to do for the rest of my life the idea for doing something for the rest of your life is scary and i i i was unhappy with myself at the time like why can't i just be like uh, my friend ahmed or like my friend ali or john or whatever who knows that he wants become a brain surgeon or a policeman since he was like nine but i i i mean i i think in due course i became less unhappy with myself and actually revealing in the fact that i like different things and that's how i moved into translation and then journalism i can i can empathize a lot with this 
the social meaning of, of engineer, having worked seven years in the, in the Middle East, when I was in, in Iraq, uh, the, the term uh, Mohandis was, was like almost the highest status you could have. So I can imagine starting off in that high status, immense success, immense accomplishment must have been reassuring, but it's, a, it's, it's something that comes from external. I'm just actually, and, and your story, I can relate to it as well, because I mean, although my own background, also lower middle class in, in, in Switzerland, was uh, offering me many opportunities, there was still an expectation that working as an employee in a company was, was, was important to preserve safety for myself, for my, for my family. Um, and, and it's only later in life that I started gaining courage to try to step outside of that. So I'd, lo- I'd love to um, maybe ask you how, how, that, how you went into journalism, actually. How do you manage to step outside that comfort zone and do something that was really on your own terms, actually? I think it all started in Bahrain, in the Gulf, in 1989, when I was still a, a control engineer uh, in an American American company, uh, actually a multinational called uh, ABB. I was considered very lucky because my my initial salary, I <laughs> I remember, was about twenty times as much as as my father, who's been working maybe twenty five years in the government of Egypt. But I was so unhappy, I was so miserable, and I started thinking that I cannot actually stay twenty years in that place doing that work. That I totally unmotivating i mean the only the only pleasure if we can call it pleasure would be at the end of the month when you look at your bank account i have many friends who are engineers and who love the work and good for them or doctors who love the work i think the issue is it's really important to feel uh, to identify with what you're doing to feel creative enough and to be able and lucky when feel that that you are not that you have the skill set and you have the ability to, to, to move on. In my case, it was largely um, it was largely chance and a bit of a skill. I, I I had taught myself English when I was a teenager, and I loved the language. Uh, I was very good at it. And one time I was in Cairo playing pool with a friend, mm-hmm. complaining like all of us complain when we are in our early twenties about the work and the managers and. Come on, I mean, you speak good English. Go and work as a translator. And here's an ad in the paper I saw this morning when I was looking for a car or something. <laughs> I, I'm just telling this long story to show that that coincidence plays an important role, but you have to seize yeah, yeah. the opportunity. <laughs> and I looked at it. It was a news agency looking for translators. And I applied and I forgot about it. And by total chance, a couple of months later, I was in Cairo coming back from Bahrain when my mother told me, ah, you, we received this letter. This was a time still when there was no yeah, e- course, email yeah. <laughs> for work. So uh, that was 1989 or something. I, you received this letter and the letter was calling me for an interview the following day. Uh, they had received <laughs> it like a month earlier. And I went and one thing led to the other and I became, I became a translator yeah, yeah. In, that, in that news agency. It was a tough, uh, tough decision to make because coming back to the salary and income and easy, clear life, you are a junior engineer in, in this company and they were planning if I continue with them in 1990, I will be a mid-level engineer in this oil field. And then 91, I was supposed to go to Arizona where they had a headquarter for training to train for a year and wow, going to America. I mean, for, for a young uh, engineer from Egypt who's... Uh, uh, 
was a big thing. It was a big yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And to move from all of that to a job without a future in a quasi-governmental news agency where I am, I think my first salary was 89 Egyptian pounds, which at the time when it still had a bit of value, the Egyptian pound, it was about $40, what I got in half a day as an engineer. I think my mother stopped talking to me for about three months. She wow. thought I destroyed my life. Uh, I'm, I'm stupid. And, and, and that was the first transition. That transition was not because I loved translation and I wanted to, to, to do that for the rest of my life, but I wanted something that I can lean on so I can jump out. I didn't have the courage. And maybe that was wise not to have this kind of courage to just jump out in the street and do nothing. So I, I went to that news agency and I remember the first year was was a bit tough. It was moving from uh, this fast-paced corporate life yeah. and engineering where one plus one usually equals two to a bureaucratic, uh, formal, official, uh, competitive, but in a, in a low way kind of environment with no resources, people who are largely unmotivated. It was oh. a strange Kafkaesque environment <laughs> the first year. And then I think one day they needed somebody to go to a press conference with uh, the Red Cross uh, to translate. And I went and the journalist or the reporter was sick. So I wrote the report and they said, huh, that's, that's nice. Uh, why don't you do reports every now and then for us? And one thing led to the other. Yeah. I started uh, writing on issues that... Uh, are safe with them. I mean, not not high politics, uh, largely cultural or uh, architectural antiquities because I was interested in, in Egyptology and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I started writing more regularly for them once a week. And that started me as, the, as a journalist, which I actually liked. I always liked working with, with language and dealing with people. And journalism gave me, gave me both of these things. That sounds quite far away from control engineering. <laughs> <laughs> yes, control engineering also satisfied one of my needs because I was much more introvert when I was when I was younger. And as a control engineer, and before that, I was a programmer for um, small business solutions. You don't have to deal with anybody, uh, so it suited me better. I mean, it was my comfort zone, but I was miserable. <laughs> and so then you moved into journalism, discovered you, you really enjoyed writing. And, and then at some point, you, 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 you did another transition more into the um, human rights or humanitarian. Or, or, or uh, Can you share a bit how, how, that, how that actually happened? When I moved into journalism, I think also something inside of me changed. Hmm. Something related to how one thinks about career, professions. When I was a teenager, I always agonized over the ideas. What is best for me? Uh, what do I want to be? What is the perfect thing for me? I think in journalism in the first two years, I, I found out, firstly, to my dismay and shock, but secondly, it was very liberating afterwards, that there is no such thing. There is no ideal profession. There is no ideal career. There is an ideal way of going about it, which is experiment. Um, be cautious, student, stuff like that, but take risk. Especially when you are in your 20s and early 30s, when less people are dependent on you, uh, when you are more agile, when you, are, when you learn faster, we have, to, we have to admit that. And, and, and that's the ideal track. Mm, yeah. The ideal professional track is, especially if you are somebody like me who is like multitasking, uh, interested in various things, just try, try, try out as many things as you can. 
and you will, uh, uh, I mean, you will settle on um, on a track you like or on a broad field you like. And that's 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 what happened uh, to me. Like in the early nineties, I was an I was this young journalist, not very particularly known or uh, among the best of of my generation in in Egypt. But uh, I got this opportunity to go to South Africa to become a foreign correspondent, as they called it, for my for my news agency. Again, on the power of my language, they needed somebody working for the agency who knows English very well and who is able to travel and who is willing to take the risk. And I did that for the following six, seven years as a reporter in South Africa and, and in the U.S. And again, I was moved not by wanting to become something else as much as by wanting to try something else mm, i wasn't yeah. i wasn't really sure and that's when i was approached by as they usually do the united nations uh, or international organizations for that matter uh, i was approached by why one un organization wanting to have a communication officer in afghanistan at the time this was a time when i thought like yes i like working with language i like traveling but at that time, at the age of 30, I just don't see myself aging like that. I want to go deeper into things. I, wanna, uh, I don't want to, to cover a different story every day. So when they asked me to go to Afghanistan, this like for me at the time, an Egyptian living in Washington, D.C., it, it seemed like very esoteric. <laughs> I mean, for me, uh, Afghanistan was related at the time to the Taliban to um, Mujahideen. Um, and, I, and I had, as an Egyptian, going to live, quote-unquote, in the West, or as a, an Arab, or as a Muslim, or as any of the identities, multiple identities that we all move with, I thought, like, I don't want to go back. Uh, and I underlined this word back, because it was in back, I've never been to Afghanistan. <laughs> but I accepted because of the challenge and because Washington, D.C. in 1999 bored me. To death. Okay. This was a time in which I, I don't think I ever in my life wrote or became uh, ordered to write about oral sex uh, as in 1999 <laughs> because of Monica Lewinsky's affair. And, and I became maybe the most sought after journalist from the Arab world because everybody would call you at TV stations in the Arab world. So, so, so what happened? And <laughs> even if Clinton himself couldn't explain what happened, I mean, how can I explain it? And, and, and some of the terms, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it sounds funny now, but like it, it, was, it, was, it was an agony because some of the terms like were not agreed upon or translated like, like oral sex itself as a word in Arabic was not... Uh, was not that common or translated. And, and, and when Clinton comes out in, in his uh, interrogation or interview with his uh, grand jury and says it depends what is, is, I mean, that's, it's, it's um, anyway. So that, that was partly, uh, a partly, small part. I, I guess it's, it's my character that seeks change and challenge. But when and, you say you yeah. were bored, you meant you, you, you felt that there was a, a sense of pointlessness about just doing these stories in this environment or you, you obviously you're not talking about the social life or no i'm not talking about the social life at all i'm talking about the professional yeah, um, yeah. Uh, professional life uh washington dc at the time now uh, as well is is for me a very 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 interesting city a fascinating city maybe um it was 
too quiet for my taste coming from Johannesburg and Cairo, which are bustling cities, <laughs> yes. uh, to Washington DC, which is quieter. And at the time, it was even quieter than that. But I had a, I had a, a nice group of friends. I was also mul- doing multiple stuff, as, 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 as I always do in my life. I was studying for a PhD at the American University in, in Washington DC. I, uh, I was trying to learn French. And I lived in a very buzzing neighborhood. I lived in, in an area called Dupont Circle, uh, where you had a lot of hyphenated Americans, like uh, the guy at the, who owned the cafe around the corner where I used to write was an Iranian-American. Uh, my girlfriend was a French-American. I had friends who are Colombian-Americans. There were so many hyphenated <laughs> people in, in Dupont Circle. And also it was the, the gay Mecca of uh, the East Coast. And for me, again, as somebody coming from a more conservative background, it was amazing for me to open up and to understand how different communities hyphenated because of uh, sex, gender, race, whatever, call it, live and relate to the world. And, yeah. and, and so, so this, like this was, I mean, I cannot imagine a more radical change of life from uh, hanging around DuPont Circle to Kabul uh, in, uh, in 1999. So how, how, how was it like and, and uh, how did that change you? It was gradual as some of these changes <laughs> happen. And as some of these changes in the first few weeks, you doubt yourself, like, why did I do this? Like, uh, <laughs> because there's, if, you are, if you are comfortable, not psychologically, if you are comfortable physically, materially in your surrounding and environment, but you just feel unhappy, I mean, it's not enough reason to change sometimes. Especially if you arrive into the new place, so you change the apartment or you change job or you change cities and you have to learn a lot of new things. But if you move to a totally different city in a completely different culture, then the first few weeks are usually difficult. Yeah. And that was, that was my, my case. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, and that hindsight came to me maybe only one year into my, uh, into my move, it was one of the best things I did in my life. One, because it moved me into working in a big organization. And there's something to be said about having an experience working within a big organization, something good and something bad. The news agency I worked for, the Middle East news agency in in Egypt, was a small organization in that sense. The World Food Program was an organization at the time of maybe a couple billion dollars. It's now like $10 billion a year. It has 10,000 people. It's part of an international governance system. You are catapulted into a totally different regime of how you work, how you relate to others within the office, office politics, uh, how you relate with people who are working for the organization, but in different sections. You work in communication, somebody works in a program. Uh, How can you marry that? Uh, I mean, I had to learn a lot of new skills, and that was extremely good for me as a person, as an individual. And this is even having not left the office yet. All of that happens within the office. But now imagine that you also, this office is, I had an office in Islamabad, Pakistan at the time, so that this office is in Pakistan, a country that just had a a military coup a year or so before, that just had nuclear uh, tests a a year or so before, and then traveling and spending half the time in Afghanistan Every every month, a country that was ruled by the by the Taliban, which was very enigmatic for the rest of the world. So, at an organizational professional level, it was a huge, steep but gratifying learning experience. 
and at an actual everyday life. It was amazing because there's something to be said about the life of an international aid worker, quote unquote. I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a story. I mean, I, I was paid, I think my salary at the time was probably 70, 80 times the salary yeah. of uh, local, uh, local employees. And I, I, I was telling my friends after one year, I was living, I was living like a, a feudal lord in Pakistan, which was not a great thing, but you get sucked into that. And you also feel like this is the only way in your very small way to help the local community is by employing a gardener and a driver and a cook and a guard because the system, the global system is very, is very uneven that you found yourself in that situation. And then also the, the protections. I mean, this was 2000, especially after 2001, after 9-11, the, the kind of protections and securities you're surrounded with, the way you are forced to be separated from the people you are claiming you are working with because you have to ride in an armored car uh, sometimes or you can't go out after dark uh, or stuff like that. And how I used to sometimes violate that so I get to meet and know the people I am working with. So that, uh, that was also one, one, one other challenge. I think the three years I spent between Pakistan and Afghanistan was, was forays into Central Asia was very educational at a personal level, cultural level, but also a professional level. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess this must have also shaped, because you also transitioned from an activity as a journalist dealing with a whole range of issues, from, from social issues to Bill Clinton to all of that. But then you were immersed in, a, in an environment where the, the hardship of the individuals was in a, of a totally... Um, different order of magnitude. So I'm kind of wondering how, what impact that had on you um, in terms of maybe shaping some of your, uh, like the sense of mission that you had. or Because when I hear you speak, I, I, I don't hear anymore uh, that you was that driven by curiosity. It, it sounds like you, you started to really um, want to, to have an impact or help people. There's, there's, it sounds like there's something that changed in you as you switch from kind of multi-subject journalism in in US down to um, an environment of, of uh, significant um, challenge in, in in all levels, individual freedom, human rights, but then also, of course, uh, with the invasion um, of war. You see, I I think Washington D.C. or for that matter, London or Paris, certain capitals. I think Tokyo, Singapore as well are like the eye of the storm. Hmm. The calmest place in the storm is the eye of the storm. Yeah. You don't yeah. feel what's happening in the storm. Yeah. So in 98, when the, 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 the whole world was, was collapsing because of the economic crisis in 1998, it didn't really affect my life in Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah. When I remember clearly when, when the U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam and in Nairobi were rocketed by uh, Al-Qaeda, and Bin Laden guys, and that was an item that I attended think tank sessions about in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Yeah. And when the Americans launched missiles against, uh, at the time they launched missiles against Iraq and against uh, Afghanistan and Sudan as well, as one guy in the Pentagon explained to me uh, as a journalist interviewing him, it was a piece of a button from a ship in the Indian Ocean or in, in Germany. I guess I'm trying to say that it, it you are really affecting the world 
when you are in Washington, D.C., every uh, TV station in the Arab world but, and some in America wanted to talk to me, but you, your existence is mediated. You don't feel it. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in Afghanistan, I saw the places that were destroyed. Yeah. I saw the Taliban. I spoke with people. I saw the, 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 the opium fields. I, I saw how people had to make very, very tough choices. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that I sympathized. But I understood. Yeah. And understanding is definitely the first step towards either at least compassion, but uh, much more important, I would say, empathy. And to understand the, the fallacy, the stupidity of uh, you are with us or with them, that, that things in reality are much more complex. I mean, I survived in, in working with, with humanitarian organizations. I survived terrorist attacks myself. I've seen mm. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen friends who were just having a few drinks with me a week before dead uh, mm. because of an explosion or or because of a, a, an attack, and that didn't didn't make me think of like it's 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 us or them. As a matter of fact, I started thinking the more we think of us as one thing and of them as one thing, less solutions we will have. You mentioned you survived a number of attacks, but. Even though you were you, you were almost a victim of, of um, this almost uh, this us versus them, if you like, you still saw the situation as complex. It didn't radicalize you in a way, being on the receiving end. It radicalized me against uh, facile, superficial, mm. and uh, manichaean black and white understandings yeah, of yeah, the world. Yeah. Yeah. It made me as angry at ISIS as much as against uh, Rumsfeld. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not equating anybody with anybody. Yeah, yeah. They always, when, when, when you start talking like that, they will tell you, ah, there's no moral equality between us and them. Yeah. Again, us and them. But my, my point is that complexity shouldn't be taken as a license to say, ah, we can never understand. We can understand. Yeah. But my point is it's not enough. It's not enough to have all these tools of, uh, of analysis. It's also important to have empathy and to understand that people suffer because of other people. And not all the time it's intentional. Uh, so once you can't start fixing the world only by using tools or rockets or missiles, you can also start fixing the world by putting yourself in the shoes of other people, understanding why they're behaving this way, where does it come from, how can we have uh, a more sustainable solution uh, for the grievances? Otherwise, we'll just continue to fight. And you, you also played a, a key role in helping uh, share that, pers- that complex perspective because you, you had a communications role as well. So do, do you, you, feel, you feel you were able to, to, to add nuance, to add uh, maybe... Uh, the silent voices from the little people um, into the room. Like, how, how did you, how did you harness the anger that you were talking about in in, in trying to break a bit this um, naive Manichaean approach that you you highlighted? I mean, I was a student when when nine eleven happened and all that, and the images I had of Afghanistan. Was, the media was 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 using images. To, to to emphasize um, this this kind of dual duality of good and evil, like looking at the oppressed women in burqa and lo- looking at the Taliban as 
aggressive savages. And it's a little bit like every time the news shows North Korea, they show people marching and missiles when, of course, the country is way more complex. So I, I thought that the, the media was playing a really, really strong role in simplifying things in the wrong way. So I'm just, just wondering, like, that must have annoyed you as well, actually. It did. Uh, it did. And I think at times I was part of that machine. Mm. You cannot think yourself uh, as God that you can be above reality. Yeah. I'm part of yeah. that reality. And my job, uh, either in the, in the World Food Program or in Peacekeeping Missions or with UNICEF as a communicator, was predicated on defending these organizations, defending yeah. the operations, yeah. raising funds for them, uh, praising their work and stuff <laughs> like that. I would think that most of my critical effort that was, I hope, was helpful uh, was inside and not outside mm -hmm. as a communicator within the organization because I thought of my job a way, two-way street, that I'm not only representing the, the organization, but because of my background, I'm also representing, at the risk of sounding megalomaniacal, I was representing the world to the organization. Like, I, I, I was... My job was not sitting uh, in the office writing programs and, and, and fundraising proposals. My job was to go and speak to the people and tell them about the organization and then tell the organization about what people think. Yeah, yeah. And that was my, I mean, my, I think my most important role, which made me come across sometimes as the l'infanterie or uh, the critical guy all the time in senior staff meetings in, in New York or in Rome or in, uh, in Islamabad. But I hope I was respected also by some people who thought like, okay, that's, that's useful. So, for example, 9-11, I mean, and, and also understanding the timing. In 9-11, I understood very well that in September, October, November, December, you cannot actually fight back the us versus them, especially when everybody was very angry for good reasons. I mean, all these images hammered upon us. Real people, these were not manufactured images of people falling down from the 180th floor and then those ugly Neanderthal-like people in the in the caves of Afghanistan, uh, joking about what they did and stuff like that in in, in TV interviews, it, it, it amounted at one stage. I remember in December two thousand one to a horror pornography. Like everybody was like, every TV was looking into like, what's more shocking. I want, to, I, want, I want the more shocking scene uh, to show to show to the people. It was very difficult to have quote unquote a reasonable mm. uh, discussion then. But you take notes, you wait to speak to people who think they, 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 they would listen. And you try to drive some reason, at least when it comes to irreversible acts. And by irreversible acts, I remember people talking to me, because I, I went back and forth between Washington and, and Islamabad and, and Kabul in 2001, 2002, about we are going to turn this country into a parking lot. Yeah. And you try to explain to them that this is a country of 20 million people and that uh, certain animosities and vendettas can go on for decades, uh, that not everybody there uh, is... I mean, you try to explain the very basics. And again, simplicity can be very harmful, mm. as we have seen, because you simplify the world, you become reductive, but sometimes simplicity is your only tool as well. Yeah. You try to explain the, the, the basics to people about a different country, uh, a different culture, and politics, and history. That yeah. most of the guns you see now in Afghanistan was actually paid for by the Americans. Yeah. And they say, oh, really? Yes, because in the 80s this happened, and Reagan, and the Jihad, and the Cold War. We have a short memory also because we are bombarded with so many things. 
I mean, the challenge now is not reaching information. The challenge is analyzing information. So if you, if you can explain to people that everything has a history, that the Mujahideen or the Taliban or Afghanistan or Bin Laden didn't come out of thin air. I mean, there was a genesis to that. And if you want to deal with it because of your own interest and because of the harmful impact they have, which is actually much more harmful to their own societies and not only to you, then you have to understand this history as much as you can and then start planning your acts accordingly. It's tough because people are comfortable doing the things they are comfortable with. Again, going back to decisions about career and profession, you're just like doing a thing yeah, you understand is. in a city you understand, surrounded by your family and friends. Why should you try to understand things differently? Like in the World Food Program, when I tried sometimes to fight with people that food aid is not the solution for that problem, we need to do it differently. But we do food aid. I mean, we are a hammer. We just hit the nail. We don't say, ah, oh, maybe we don't need a nail here because then we lose our job. And try to explain to them, you don't have to grow and, and get more funding and do more work. Sometimes maybe it's better to do less work. Oh, that's, that's yeah. an anatomy. That's a strange thing to say, yeah. And that's a voice that you try to, to bring into the room. Yes, and I, I would like to say that actually not only, I mean, not only me, but yeah. there, there's always inside these organizations, even the worst ones, and I had to deal in my human rights life later on with people who work in, in, in security organizations accused of torture and other things. Yeah. Even inside the worst organizations, you can have interlocutors and people you can talk to, people you can deal with to make things a little bit, uh, a little bit better. So there were people like me yeah. uh, in organizations like uh, the United Nations who are trying to slow down, think more holistically, change things a little bit, and also admit their limitations every now yeah. and then. Yeah. You had a very successful career in the, in the, in the UN. And you also did, uh, when, I, when I read your, your, your bio, you, you set up this um, the, uh, Egyptian uh, organization looking after human, uh, human rights in prisons and things. Like, can, you, can you share how you got into that? And to me, it sounds, especially the period of time you, would, you were doing that, um, it, it sounds like a very extraordinarily challenging task working with the uh, with uh, you, you you were looking after uh, t- t- trying to 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 protect some to create some space for lgbt as well i'd i'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about how you got into that i mean like like everything in one's life i think it's, it was also a very personal decision uh, or you can call it my own midlife crisis. <laughs> I think I was 46, 47 when I took the decision that I need to, I need to leave the comfort of the United Nations because I was, I felt I hit a wall um, and I wasn't very comfortable with how much change I was, I was able to, 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 to effect mm. within um, the organization. But the fact that I was in my mid-40s made me also think that if I don't start a different path now, I will not start mm, it. Yeah, yeah. I also became conscious of age and what age yeah, means. Yeah. Not only because I, I became married with two kids, but also uh, because there is less, I, I would think there's less capacity to learn and to run uh, the older you get. So I thought it's actually a good time to start learning something, something new and, and run with it. So when I started to have disagreements with, uh, within, within the organization at the time concerning the rights of children, that we are much more focused on vaccinating and educating children who have no rights and that this is unacceptable, I thought like, okay, I mean, now I'm, I'm, I'm turning into the, 
like Cassandra, I'm just like uh, all the time warning about about uh, bad programming. So why why don't I just like move to the other side and work on rights on, on that yeah. uh, as such? And again, coincidence plays a role, as we all know. That was a time in New York where I met a couple of friends uh, working on human rights in Egypt. This was a time one or two years after what is called the Arab Spring, uh, big uh, popular upheavals in the in the region that that, that deposed uh, long-serving dictators like Mubarak in Egypt, Gaddafi in Libya, and others. So I was told that this very prestigious human rights organization, the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, is looking for an executive director. Would you be interested? And I said, maybe. And then I got an offer a week later. Yeah. yeah. It was a difficult decision to take. <laughs> and again, I think I was aided by my own experience because you move from a huge salary to a fraction of that. <laughs> and you move from the stability of New York to the unknown of Cairo, right. a country going through a big transition. I actually arrived to take over my job a couple of days after the worst massacre in modern Egyptian history when about 900 people were killed in the street, 900 protesters were killed by security forces. And again, as happened to me when I I, I left my engineering job in Bahrain to go to this uh, lousy job in Cairo as a translator, and as I left my cushy job in Washington as a journalist to go to Kabul, and now people thought I was crazy. And maybe I was slightly crazy. Uh, (laughs) But again, with the benefit of insight, thinking of that decision, which was like maybe eight years ago, this was again one of the best decisions I've taken in my life. Uh, Professionally speaking, personally speaking, I think my kids benefited. I'm going to start from the small, my small universe. My kids benefited a lot from from having lived in three different countries uh, in the first 10 years of life, uh, from learning, from coming closer to their culture, so to speak, yeah. because they are multicultural, like it or not. I benefited a lot from re-establishing a relationship with the region and the country where I come from, applying all the knowledge I, I have I have garnered over, over the years since I left. But I benefited from working with people who are younger, mm. yeah. people who are very committed, dedicated, brave, working on, on issues from like the rights of the poor, socioeconomic rights, all the way to LGBTQ. Uh, right and seeing how they are all linked that that you cannot because now there is a, a fashion it's fashionable now especially in the winter to say i oh, forgot about forget about political rights and civil rights and focus on poverty and socioeconomic rights they're all linked they're all linked together so i spent maybe two again of my best professional years now this has become a cliche but i spent two <laughs> of my best professional years running the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights in, in Cairo, and I did learn a lot. Wow. You were able to, to, to create a space to talk about human rights in a country where human rights are really not, not you can't take them for granted. I mean... Yes, I mean, if you take them for granted, then you don't need to defend them, right? Uh, the organization did exist. What I was able to do is to sail it through very turbulent mm-hmm. water. Yeah. At the time, you have a military coup, you have people being literally killed uh, in the street. You have people like me called traitors and spies. So I think it's... You, you uh, call a traitor and spy because you, you came, you'd come from the US and you, you, you were... Um, yes, and also because you're using the human rights language while everybody right. else is using yeah. the language of like uh, right-wing patriotism and it's like almost like Germany, Deutschland, for Alice. 
right, uh, in yeah, the Hitler yeah. days, like Egypt above all, and we need to maintain our country, we need to save our country from the evil forces, and of course you ask them, so which one are the evil forces? So anyone who doesn't like us and who are those people? And, and then you go into this like uh, paranoid, uh, hyper-nationalistic discourse that you can still hear in many parts of the world, from, from uh, the, the Putin crowd in Moscow to the urban crowd in Hungary to the Trump crowd in the US. I mean, it's, it, it does exist everywhere. When, when the world has a lot of problems, some people prefer to focus on their very own limited uh, street or country or neighborhood and think that the rest will be will cause problems the never stop for a little bit and think so what is the role in causing these problems how can they help solve it are they all interconnected like we, what we have seen with the coronavirus that you cannot fix one country and let the rest to rot but how much responsibility should, should Egyptians or Afghans or Americans take for their own mayhem instead of blaming the Chinese or the Pakistanis or the Israelis? There is no one solution fits all. But in my work with human rights, I learned how to understand the angst, the, the fear of quote-unquote uh, simple people. And by simple people, I mean, these can be like very sophisticated IT uh, experts but uh, the relationship to politics is nil, or their understanding of how the world functions outside their computer screens is, is, is also minimal. So it's, it's, it's how to understand their fears, their fears of instability, their fears of like the world changing into something they don't understand, they don't know, their fears of losing their income, their fears of losing their lifestyle, but also insist on your principles and show that your principles actually fit uh, they would fit their culture, fit their ambitions. So it was, it was, it was tough. Yeah. So it was about about creating more awareness about the, the what, what is human rights, but then at the same time, uh, so, so there was a communication mission. But I, I guess you were also working with the authorities to try to improve. Um, I, I, I guess the, 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 the way prisoners were handled in the in the carceral system and. And so you, you work on the substance, like, for example, if, I mean, you try to, to, to explain to the uh, authorities when you can work with them that if they want stability, okay, I'm not going to argue whether stability is stability or stagnation. Okay, you want stability, you cannot get stability by torturing prisoners because of one, two, three. So you don't have to use the, the, the legal argument sometimes or the ethical argument that torture is an acceptable period. Uh, because it's ethically unacceptable, or torture is unacceptable because it's against the international law. It's unacceptable because it's under against the national law or your own cultural norms. Maybe you only just focus on the on the on the political argument with some of them that actually you don't get what you need with torture. Yeah. It doesn't work, uh, and there is this body of evidence, and you go into that. Um, so you try to find a, even with the worst kind of people. Uh, organizations, you try to find common ground as much as you think that yeah. a common ground does exist because sometimes you, you're risking becoming part of their machine at whitewashing themselves yeah. by them yeah. saying that, ah, but we have these human rights organizations working and issuing reports and we meet with them and they invite you and they take photos with you. Um, so you have to be careful with that. So one, you can create common ground with them. You can create common ground even with the opposition, uh, people who, who oppose the regime. You can use or calibrate your arguments depending on whom you're dealing with. So if you're dealing with the French or the Americans who would like to sell arms to such countries like Egypt, you try to explain to them that they cannot have regional stability by doing one to three. You understand they want to sell 
pounds because they want to create jobs for the French before the elections, for example. But that will come back to bite them as Afghanistan came back to bite them because the Qaeda were the sons and daughters of the Mujahideen. So you try to calibrate your argument to the to the real world, but then with people who are supporting you from France or from India, fellow road travelers who work on human rights, you can use different arguments about how we can work together, how human rights are important, uh, how can you uh, improve the global mechanisms. So you're working on national level, international level, but also multinational level when you go to the Human Rights Council in the UN and make presentations and you try to push for new uh, procedures that will make governments more accountable. So in a way, you always have to work at multiple levels with multiple discourses. And this is the kind of job a communicator can master because yeah. you're, not, you're not focused on creating the best reports on the massacre. Like, for example, I edited the only Egyptian report about the massacre of 20, 2013. And uh, so I, I, I chose the title, Weeks of Killing. I chose uh, how to start it. I reordered the chapters, but I didn't do the research. I'm not the expert on human rights research as such, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'm an expert on how I can take this body of research and make it in the best presentable way and on working on the recommendations that I think are doable. So, so I think this was my added value, yeah. So that it works for an internal audience, both civilian and government, but also can be used externally as well. And It works for multiple internal audiences, including the families of the victims. Yeah who would like to have justice. And then it works on regional audience who would like to have a stable country. It works on international audience. It works on lawyers. It works on ethicists and stuff like that. And your your personal safety was, uh, I mean, this is a very courageous thing to do in a a place like Egypt. I mean, sometimes you feel that you were brave, but like a year or two after the fact. I think during the time you are motivated by... Your principles, you're motivated by the suffering of people around you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you leave, especially if you talk to people and, and you see what's happening, uh, you're motivated by your faith. You're motivated also by, uh, I don't know, I mean, some of us are motivated by by by, by their social responsibility and some of us are not. And I'm, I'm not trying to make an ethical hierarchy here, but uh, it's just, uh, it, is, it is the way it is. Were I brave? I think I was brave enough. I was prudent as well. I was never uh, shrill. I was never uh, critical when criticism couldn't be useful and is not fully uh, resting on, 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 on facts. I was interrogated by, yeah. uh, by the security agencies. I was put into a watch list that I'm still on. So I get stopped at, uh, at, at, at the airport when I go back home and stuff like that. Uh, but I think it was it was com- it's completely a small price to pay as a responsible citizen. I think all of us are responsible for each other in, in a way, in, in a way, shape or form, either responsible to the people starting from our small families and ending with our countries, our nations yeah. and, and humanity as such. Yeah. And you talk about family and you, you mentioned to me earlier that, that uh, fatherhood shaped your life. Are, are you, can you share a little bit how that, how that, uh, how that happened and how that shaped you because you 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 mentioned also you brought your your children back to back to Egypt i think it was their first time living in egypt right yes truly as one of them lived for a few months before i took him to sudan where i used to work in, in 2008 9 10 i think all of us are under tremendous pressure 
to act as individuals and to care about our own private life and take care of ourselves individually. And I don't call that selfishness. I think people who cannot care for themselves cannot care for anybody else. And even many or some of the people who do play social roles, politicians, uh, advocates, sometimes they are more motivated by their own glory, by the plight uh, of others. What fatherhood added to me, how fatherhood enriched me, was really about how you can truly become selfless sometimes how you can truly work for others, how you can truly, at one stage when I looked at my like one year old and I thought like, gee, I think I can die for this kid. I mean, <laughs> and like he's one year old. I mean, he's, <laughs> I mean, he is like any other child. I mean, you know what, what that, I mean, uh, now, uh, now I know what you yourself. mean. So. <laughs> like, 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 and I said like, ah, and with time, this love also is infectious. This love and sense of sacrifice or that readiness to sacrifice expands to include, to include other people. Of course, this also comes with a risk because love sometimes gets translated into, into not all into good things. Love sometimes gets translated into possessiveness or wanting your child to be something that he or she is not willing to be. I believe some dictators behaved out of love to their people and their nations. So a good love as well, as I was taught by my children, by trying to speak to them, by trying to understand what they want. Uh, and even if it doesn't make sense to my universe, uh, maybe it doesn't make sense to them, where should I compromise and where I shouldn't. So practicing my love to them, practicing fatherhood, I would like to think reflected very well on how I practice my own profession. And even how, I, uh, how, I, how I, I take professional decisions, one of the decisions I took in the last five years when I decided I, I'm actually going to move to writing completely, writing and teaching, because I want to have much more time at my disposal for my kids and my family. Uh, my wife is also a professional. So uh, they were partly the source of, of, of that decision as well. Hmm. Yeah. Khaled, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation and I wanted to ask you if there's anything you wanted to, to, to add or, or, or share. I, I think the only thing I want to add is, is, is that you can actually take great care of your own self if you know how to take good care of others. Mm. Uh, because if you are totally inward focused, most likely you will fail at both missions, taking care of yourself and taking care of people that uh, you love or you think you love. So I just don't want this podcast or this the interview to to, 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 to to come across as, as, as I'm, I'm, I'm totally self-engulfed. This is everything I've done in my life. When, when I really think fondly of things that happened to me in my, in my life, and I'm, I'm 55, I, I think of things I had with others. I, yeah. I don't think of things I had on my own. Yeah, and it it sounds like I mean we we've spoken to so, uh, about about so many so many topics from from uh, from from your 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 transformation like your your courage of doing doing changes, uh, your your also how you comfortably straddle the, the different countries and then how uh, you 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 found a, in a way it sounds like you found a voice to 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 to, to advocate for. The, the people that you got into contact with, uh, starting in Afghanistan and then in uh, in uh, Sudan and other places, um, you're also writing now. Actually, how, how does that kind of fit in, if you like, with with uh, 
is, is like what's animating you? Because you, you also have a strong interest in in art and culture and history and literature. Uh, is that an outlet for that as well now? It is an outlet. It's also something that uh, I, I, I always had a relationship with with language uh, and expression since 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 my early days. As a matter of fact, I, I I have two books coming out in a week's time. That's why I'm I'm, I'm so excited. It's it's books I've been working on for for the best part of the last ten years. It's just a wow, coincidence okay. that they are coming out. One of them is about Afghanistan, which we discussed in this in this program for a little bit and the other one is 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 my first novel and it's about some of the transitions i mean every writer writes a bit about himself at the end of the day i think writing is i i, I just can't can't uh, can't summarize it but uh, for me it's a tough undertaking but it's very gratifying it helps me understand myself and others better and i also hope that it will give them some pleasure and some understanding of the world, their world or the world of others. I also wanted to say that to me, uh, to this conversation, in this conversation, I mean, you don't come across at all as self-absorbed or or, or uh, having been very internally focused all these years, because uh, I think a lot, a lot of what you say resonates with me personally as, as pearls of, of wisdom that I, I could learn from as well having chosen a certain path for many, maybe many more, more years than I should have. And, and it helps me reflect on yeah, some guiding principles for making courageous decisions to, to follow uh, one's true essence, if you like, which one discovers maybe later in life. Uh, and, and doing that also respectfully um, and, and, and yeah, even while having obligations with the, with the family, actually. So and, and it's it's a it's it's a series of themes that have come come through quite a lot of the other conversations for this podcast of, of how how we all kind of have to make this this balance of trying to be the best that we can be, not really for ourselves but 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 for 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 others as well. No, thank you. I I also enjoyed it, and I think the uh, if one uh, if one comes across as the as the as useful as a good teacher, it's also because one should could be a good student. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out. Mm-hmm.